Hi everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. I'm your host, Niklas Sävos, and next to me is my friend and colleague, Eddie Palmgren. How are you today? I'm thrilled. Today we have the great pleasure and honor of speaking to the legendary Richard Lawrence, one of the best investors in Asian equities over the last three decades. And Richard founded Overlook Investments in Hong Kong in 1991 and has since then delivered a very impressive CAGR of 14.3% per year, annually beating the market with about 6.5 percentage points. And the fund now has about 6.5 billion US dollars in assets. And this is despite returning $2 billion to investors in the last 3.5 years. And which book will we talk about today? Yeah, so due to or actually thanks to the pandemic, Richard got the time to write a book where he describes the Overlook model and also celebrates the 30-year anniversary for the fund. And uh, this is about the strategy that has worked so well for his firm. And the book is called The Model and it was published in February 2022 by Harriman House. And why have we chosen this title? Yeah, I see three reasons. First of all, we are truly impressed by Overlook's processes and the results. And we are extremely thankful for our friends in Singapore and Shanghai who have helped us to get in touch with Richard and even sent us copies of his book to Sweden. And secondly, in the podcast, we always base our conversations on a book. And in the end, it usually leads to a discussion about the investment style of that specific investor. So I think it's great in this case that the entire purpose of Richard's book is to explain the successful investment philosophy and the business practices of the Overlook Fund. And I really hope that our conversation today can be of high value for both fund managers and all other investors. And the third reason for choosing this book is to gain new perspectives from other parts of the world. And that is something we actively try to do because so far most of the authors and investors we have had on the podcast, they are operating in the US or Europe and many of the books that we are looking at, they are focused on those areas. So the model with its really excellent mix of real-time reports and also investment strategy from decades of experience in Asia, it really offers a perfect opportunity to broaden our views. And how does this book relate to Red Eye's quality rating? So the book covers the story of being an early investor in a region undergoing dramatic changes with uh, plenty of lessons about, for example, corporate governance. The, co- the quality rating at Red Eye consists of more than 100 questions in the three main categories, people, business and financials. And I think really about corporate governance, that's an important part of the, the people section. And also, I think this whole way of thinking and and, uh, rating businesses is quite similar to Overlook's philosophy of searching for for quality businesses run by trustworthy people and that are valued at a reasonable price. We are grateful and honored to have the founder of Overlook Investments and the author of The Model on the show. Here comes our conversation with Richard Lawrence. So hello, Richard, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Yes, welcome indeed. It's such an honor for me to be here, and I'm thrilled. Investment books have been one of the great passions of my life. And for the last 30 years, every other book I read is an investment book. And so I I really appreciate uh, our common interest. And so I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And where are you today? Uh, I'm in my office uh, north of San Francisco, about maybe 10 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge, which I think most of your 
most of your listeners will know. So Richard, can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, about you? So I'm originally uh, from New York, outside New York City. Uh, I grew up a sort of traditional uh, middle-income family. Uh, my dad was a, a money manager, uh, what we'd call today a multifamily office he ran with his partner. Um, I went to, to schools and um, I graduated from Brown University in, in 1978. And it was really towards the end of the uh, inflationary era of the late 60s and 70s. And uh, it has some relevance for today with the inflation going around the world. But at that time, I could get no job in America despite having a degree from Brown. And I went to my professor and he said, Richard, go to Venezuela. And I kind of looked at him and go, huh? You know, I said, okay, you know, because I had no other plan and went home, back to my dorm and called my dad. I said, well, I figured it out. I'm going to Venezuela. Dad went, huh? You know, because I didn't speak Spanish. But Venezuela was benefiting from the last 15 years of ever higher inflation in the oil boom. And indeed, it was one of the huge boom towns. It was the richest country in Latin America at that time. And so I, I went to Venezuela, I spent three years in South America, came back and worked for a, a, a wonderful man named Jonathan Bush, who passed away a little under a year ago, actually on this exact same day that David Swenson, who ran the Yale Investment Office, died. And John hired me to run the research at a small brokerage firm and money management firm in New York. And I did that, and, and it was just the most amazing experience. John would pull us all into his office on Monday morning and teach us how to invest. And um, so, and I'd wander around the world looking at companies. And I was completely enamored with that. I was doing the CFA at night. And uh, one day I walked by chance into the Malaysian consulate in New York City. And I picked up a brochure that said that the Malaysian had, economy had compounded at 6.8% since 1968 without a down year. And I literally, turned around. I said, I'm out of here. And uh, I picked up my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and um, we traveled for a while, but ended up, um, I ended up in 1985, late 85 in Hong Kong. I was broke. I had a backpack and nothing else, no job, no visa. And uh, I started working. I was one of three Americans at that time working in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which really wasn't the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, it was four different exchanges, uh, all interconnected with closed circuit TVs and whiteboards. Um, so it was really, really early days. And um, I hooked up with a group called First Pacific, which was a conglomerate out of Indonesia. And I went to work for one person, Bob Meyer, who was running one part of that, an investment arm. We bought a, a listing, kind of like a SPAC deal. Um, uh, we bought a listing on the, on the stock exchange. We had a market cap of 4.5 million us dollars and we're the 93rd largest public company in Hong Kong. Just to put that in perspective, uh, today, the hundredth largest public company in, in Hong Kong would be tens of billions of dollars in size. So, and China had no stock market. Indonesia had no stock market at that time. So it was it was really early days, and and I I worked for this arm of First Pacific for about four years, and then um, 
I went across town to a friend of mine, Dr. Mark Farber, author of the Gloom, Doom, and Boom Report. And I said, Mark, I'm, I, I don't want a job, but I want to work in an environment where people are investing as a principal. And he said, well, if I don't have to pay you, fine. I have this library, a little tiny office, uh, which was Mark's library. And I went in there and, and uh, I spent a year uh, really on my own putting together uh, the, in, the, 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 the core of what is still today, our investment philosophy and, um, and the makeup of what is Overlook Investments. And, you know, 80% of what we are today was put in place in that year. And um, then 12 months later, I went out and raised $30 million from sort of friends and anybody I could get money out of, mostly individuals. And um, we started Overlook. And why did you name it Overlook Investments? Uh, I grew up outside New York on a, um, on a piece of land that was called Overlook Farm. And it was a farm up on a hill. And in the wintertime in particular, you get a good view. And uh, I had run a kind of a little family partnership with my brothers and my dad. And during once I started investing in Hong Kong, and that had done well. So I said... I, I, for feng shui reasons, I better not change. So I just adopted that name. I thought it was overlooked investments, like you were the, the ones that no one has found. No, a lot of people say, is it overlooked because you've overlooked all the details? <laughs> <laughs> Rather the opposite, I guess. Yeah. We will talk more about that. And I think we will, we will start off with, uh, I mean, discussing the book a bit. Um, you have a whole chapter dedicated to bear markets which I think is quite fitting as we have one currently. And also, I mean, it, when you read the book, you really see you have a table there showing how many bear markets you have been through. And uh, it's been quite a lot since, <laughs> since the 1990s, I think. Um, what are your main lessons from, from investing in bear markets? Wow. Well, it, 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 bear, bear markets are the essential time, right? This is when to use... a an American baseball analogy, you cannot swing and miss. You cannot, you, you cannot misplay the bear market because a lot of times that's it. You're gone. You never come back. So they, this is the essential uh, time. And it's interesting that we're in a bear market today where a lot of these lessons are a little more poignant than they were a year ago when I wrote the chapter about bear markets. Um, but I think there are a few uh, core lessons that you have to learn. The first one would be uh, don't take money in at the top of the of the bull market. When everybody wants to give you money, don't take it. Now, that's a very hard thing to say no to. So we've put in place a legal cap that restricts our ability to take the money in at the top. And uh, we can come back and talk about the cap because I think it's it's fundamental to really high quality asset management. But if you if you don't take the money at the top, then as the bear market unfolds, you will have some investors who just get scared or get caught and they'll redeem and and you replace them with you know a backlog of investors that you have built up. And then so you've once you've settled the capital and you now understand that you are not selling the crown jewels to get the money for the redemptions, right? Then what you do is you just execute. And a lot of that is buy early and often. 
okay? Because you don't know how far it's going to go. You don't know when it's going to end. And so you buy often and you buy and the stocks go down, you buy and the stocks go down, you buy and the stocks go down. You have to do that because it's a failed, it's a failed theory that you're going to buy at the bottom. And in my view, much more interesting in my, in my view, it's also a failed theory that you're going to buy on the first leg up. Because you bought and they went down. You bought and they went down. And, and now they're going up again. You say, nah, not going to catch me. And so you really don't buy there. So it predicates you that you have to buy early and often, number one. Number two, you're going to have to take your portfolio and you have to hook your cart to some horses. Okay. This is not a time to have go with a core portfolio of 20 to 22 holdings to 35 holdings. This is when you go from 22 really down to 19. And and um, that concentration is, is really important because you need some big, strong horses that are going to get you through. Uh, particularly, you know, what you don't know is how deep the bear market's going to get. You know, so... So we've seen some really big ones. And I can tell you, when you get into a big bear market, you really need you really need some strong horses at the top of your portfolio to get you through. Um, the, the other thing is, is within a team dynamic, um, you cannot question the investment philosophy. It is, you know, at a time when it's not working, you do not question it. And that's a hard thing to do. A lot of people want to, oh, well, we should do this, or, oh, we got to do that, or, oh, we should have 35 names. No, -uh. you just, you have your model and you just execute it. Um, and I think it's, it's also one of these great times where relationships that you build up with your public companies really get deeper and deeper. Because they're, in many cases, as confused as you are. I remember times in 97, 98, you know, I'd go out and see a CEO and he had as many questions for me as I had for him. You know, like, what the hell is going on here? You know, <laughs> everything's gone to, gone to zero, you know. So, um, and then there are a couple other things that you have to remember. When you're in a bear market, they feel like they're going to go on forever. And in fact, I, I, I calculated in the book that the average bear market from the 1920s has been about 16 months and the average decline has been about 35%. So they, they, they end and they don't go to zero. And when you're in them, they, you feel definitely like they're, they're, they're going to zero. Um, and, and so that tells you, you know, it, it should give you the impetus to keep pushing ahead through bear markets. Don't stop. Don't, um, don't stop moving forward. Don't and and I guess the other thing which is critical for your team, and this is in in all times, but we have a policy where we do not do postmortems on companies, uh, which are really finger pointing exercises. I, I leave that to Ray Dalio. That Ray likes to point fingers at at employees who make mistakes. I I, I find it an absolute anathema. Um, we're in this together, and it's only when when you acknowledge that you've also made bad stock decisions, um, that you hold the team together, which is which is really important. So, I mean, and I I can go on, but you get an idea of 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 how important this stuff is. Bear, you know, surviving bear markets is. Yeah, and in the book, you also provide some really nice 
real-time reports uh, from the time and especially from the 1997 and 1998 Asian crisis. You write about these 16-hour days, sleepless nights, and this market just keeps on falling and you're, you're titled one of those parts of the book. Are you joking when it keeps going down? And one of the fascinating examples that stayed with me is this 99.3% crash in the Thai property sub-index. I mean, it's equal to a uh, stock going down 80%. Then dropping another 80% and then falling another 80%. And that's just crazy, but it really stayed with me. How, how do you find the motivation to continue? Well, I had two young kids and education bills. And, uh, and uh, you know, Hong Kong's always been a very expensive place. I had an enormously expensive rental, even though it was an old apartment. It's, it, so, I, you know, I, I had, like, I had no other option. This is what I did. <laughs> uh, so I... I, uh, but I'm, uh, I think if you ask uh, people around me who have known me for a long time, um, if they ask what the dominant trade of Richard Lawrence is, they probably would say that uh, uh, certainly one of them would be that I'm really competitive. And, and it takes that competitive drive to get through a really bad bear market. Because it seems like you're quite spontaneous going to Venezuela and then heading to the East Asia and traveling around. But you also seem to have such a insane persistence and perseverance. You just keep going. How How is that for you? Well, I, I mean, I, I've always kind of felt that no one would ever hire me. You know, I'm I'm probably the only person on earth. I, I've never gotten a call from a headhunter in my whole career. So I, I figure there are no other jobs for me out there. I just, you know, but but in all seriously, look, I am by profession, I'm a stock picker. This is what I love. I love figuring out companies and what they're worth. I love figuring out management. I love looking at their long-term track record and really digging into how uh, they treat their minority shareholders. I love the challenge of trying uh, to convince executives who come from an entirely different culture to take steps to improve their their company you know where they have no right you know they never listen to some guy with red hair from new york you know they just haven't done that and here he is he's being very insistent that we you know that we need to think about things and then learn that actually richard was right i i i love the fight i love the chase i love the discovery I mean, it's it's the best. It it we're in the single most competitive market in the world. You know, it's like being able to play at the NBA, but you're not playing just against 400 NBA players. You're you're really competing against almost everybody in the world with even small amounts of money. And uh, I so I love that the the competition. I love the challenge, and we've been incredibly fortunate to kind of figured out our niche in this. Yeah, we feel the same way here. And that one of the reasons why, why we have this podcast and try to read as much as possible, trying to understand and trying to unlock it. Because as I understand from listening other to other podcasts and so on, it's not so much for you about, or not at all, maybe uh, for the money, like your own personal money. It's more about delivering to investors. That's... Uh, or what is the mo your motivation in that sense? Is it more the challenge? Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it was always it was always the challenge. It was always the challenge. I I don't I'm, I don't have a 
a very extravagant lifestyle. I live in the same house I've lived in for 22 years. You know, I drive a 13 year old car. Um, and I think that helps. I have a wife that's a, a, a true believer in the danger of climate change. And so she lives an incredibly simple life. I think that keeps me grounded. Um, money is an enormous corrupter. I, I actually have fired people because they cared too much about the money. The money is the end result. Uh, what the real value is, is the, having the opportunity to invest for a living. That's, that's where the value is. And, and the money comes along. As I tell my kids, the less you care about money, the more you generally will make. And um, in a world filled with greedy people, uh, that's a good philosophy to have. Talking about philosophy, uh, the investment philosophy of Overlook, as you've mentioned, has been more or less in place since 1992 and uh, focuses on, on four pillars. First, superior businesses. Second, superior company managers. Thirdly, valuation discipline. And fourth, long-term investment horizon. And uh, you describe each pillar in the book and also bring up examples of companies you have invested in, which makes it, I, I think, really easy for us readers to to grasp what you mean. Uh, how is the process like when you decided to focus on investing in quality companies? I think many value investors maybe start out with just trying to buy the, the cheapest stuff they can find, but and then, yeah, in the end, uh, end up with quality companies. So can you describe your process there? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a really interesting comment, Nicholas, because for a long time in the early 90s, I thought Buffett had kind of sold out as he had made this pivot over the prior decade. And and then I realized that we also made that same pivot. And it's really due to size, I think, more than anything else. You know, when I was managing 30 million or 100 million dollars, you know, just go out and buy the cheapest damn thing you can find, you know. Um, but, but you learn lessons of, of that are really important, which is going back to some of the things that are in the investment philosophy. When we talk about superior businesses, it's that really high profitability that is critical to long duration, which was also one of the pillars, right? If you, a lot of times these really, really cheap stocks, these, these cigar butts on the street corner, uh, they don't have that really high enduring profitability. And as you go along, you realize that, that that's a really high value, that you can buy a stock and you can own it for three, five, seven, 10 years, or even longer. That is really, really powerful. Um, where these cigar butts, you got to buy them and then you got to sell them. And you got to buy them right and you got to sell them. And then things like bull mar bear markets are complete inconveniences to that process. So I, I think that I'm probably, you know, Buffett did it. And I think a lot of us after him have gone through that same kind of transition. And which, which other investors have influenced you the most in, uh, in coming up with the principles? You mentioned Buffett, but other. Well, you know, I have this love-hate with Buffett. You know, the, the stuff I love most of Buffett are the things that he wrote in the 60s before he'd set up Berkshire Hathaway, those early partnership letters. I thought those were just fantastic. His letters in the, you know, really up through the 90s were really, really good letters. But then he got into owning companies and became less interested in 
in the stock investing and talking about that. So it's 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 been kind of a love hate deal with him. But I I've been touched and and I think I was thinking about it last night in advance of this conversation. What I was fortunate to do, largely through reading books, meeting people, listening to people, however I interacted with them, is I I didn't take everything, but I took slivers. You know, there's a great investor, John Neff. Well, John Neff told me about an equation and how he was looking at the construction of his portfolio. Boom. I don't know what he wrote about in his other 290 pages, but those two or three pages I really got. And then Charlie Ellis taught me about rebalancing, which had been a, just a blind spot for me. Um, you know, my dad, John Bush, Peter Cannell, these were the old prior generation, these lions of the original fund management uh, generation. I, I had access to a lot of them and, and they taught me a lot. Uh, Mark Farber, who is, uh, been a dear friend for 38 years and been on my advisory board for 30 years. And I'm probably the person, the single person on earth who's read more of Mark's newsletters than anybody else. But but Mark has this wonderful ability to, to say, you know, it's what's on the backside of the coin is what's important. We all can see what everyone's talking about. But this, to bring a contrarian, not stupidly contrarian, you know, and, and, and being a contrarian, you know, is you've got to go through a learning process on that. But but he was, you know, Mark's definitely on the list. I think uh, for your for your readers, John Train, he wrote a whole series of books called The Money Masters, which were little chapters on on various great investors. And, you know, in, in 12 chapters, I got two cousins. I would routinely get two cousins out of out of John's books, and you know, and so slowly I found myself um, in the early days at Overlook, and even as I go on, you know, I'm I'm slowly accumulating my cousins who have contributed uh, something to Overlook. You know, there 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 are very few components of Overlook that someone didn't do before, but we've got to bring them together in an authentic way. Um, um, so there's there, there are lots of other names. Leon Levy. I, I don't know. Your readers probably don't know Leon. He was one of the first hedge fund managers in New York, um, ran a, a hedge fund called Odyssey Partners. And I was introduced to Leon by, by Mark Farber. And he had a, an office filled with Greek statues and frescoes. And he had a pipe. And he was always covered with ash and he's all sitting behind there as kind of this professorial guy. And I'd go in and see him. He was an investor. So I go see him. And it was during 97, 98. And I was just crucifying people. And Leon looked at me and said, uh, well, Richard, you don't know how to sell securities. And I literally, my mouth opened, my jaw dropped, and I had nothing to say because he completely denuded me <laughs> in his <laughs> office. And I remember I went back out onto 53rd, 54th Street in New York, and I actually leaned up against the building, kind of hyperventilating. And I realized that I had to learn how to sell securities, you know? And, and so, you know, it's, it's those experiences or those chapters in books, that, which is 
why I, I love your podcast because you can bring those sort of opportunities to all your listeners. It's really impressive how you can have such an open mind to take in all of these different perspectives and opinions because it's it's easy to in that situation uh, maybe feel threatened and say no I'm not going to listen to you and reject it. Yeah. Well, I'm a very I'm a humble guy that's very well aware of my own inadequacies. <laughs> I I need, you know, Eddie, I need all the help I can get. So, but it's been it's been a rich process. There was one, and I I tried to look it up yesterday on the internet, and you can't really find it. But um, in the '90s and 2000s, there was um, a guy in New York who wrote a newsletter called Outstanding Investors Digest, and it was so infuriating because he'd send out three issues a year, uh, but there'd be like six months nothing, and then two would come in two months, and then nothing, and. I'd always have to write them. Well, did you not send it to me, you know, from Hong Kong? And But what they were were interviews that he had with money managers where these money managers got into such incredible detail on their companies. They were so encyclopedic in the knowledge of their companies. And that was like, I got to be that guy. I got to have that level of knowledge about our companies because that's where you, that's where your advantage is. So that was another another uh another media that that just was so helpful to me so when trying to find the best investments one of the pillars that we mentioned here is the finding the superior company managers so we're a bit curious if there are any characteristics of managers in asia that you think are uh, more important and that western leaders should embrace yeah i i think that as a general rule i think asian entrepreneurs are incredibly instinctive, really intelligent. They're uh, tactical, but also strategic. Uh, they really think long-term. Um, they're tough. Um, and, and so as a group, I really like the Chinese entrepreneur writ large all across Asia. I've I've had incredible experiences. Now, within that group, you have a, a spectrum. And on some of these guys on the spectrum are way too aggressive, right? Like the real estate developers in China, just and real estate developers in most places, way too aggressive, right? And you add the other ones, way too too conservative, or, or guys who are oh, just stealing from minority shareholders, way too aggressive on minority shareholders. And there are others that are in just that sweet spot, trying to grow their business 11, 12% per year, paying dividends, got high profitability. Those guys are got good corporate governance because they don't need to rip you off. And, and so it's, it's really, how do you find those people? Okay, well, number one, look at their long-term track record. How did they behave in 97, 98? How did they behave in 07, 08? If they did a deep discount rights issue or if they had to get bailed out, they're going to make the same mistake again. Okay, so you can really learn from their long-term track record. Long-term track record tells you a lot about, about uh, the person running the business. I, when I finally meet these people, I, I kind of already know them, you know, because I see him in his track record or her in, her, in the track record. Um, uh, but it, it is tricky. It's an art. You don't bat a thousand. And 
part of the problem is, is that you got to start at the IR level. Then you got to go to the CFO level. Then you got to go to the CEO level. And then you got to go to the chairman who is, used to be the CEO and is really the guy owning all the stock. And that can take you a year and a half. And by that point, if you made a mistake, he's already stealing money from you, right? So um, I don't have, and, and I have never complained about this, these CEOs are not university colleagues of mine. I, I did not go to university in Asia. I don't have family members that run public companies. So I had to, you know, I, I'm pretty well versed on starting at IR, going all the way up to the top. And, and that's part of just, you know, our, our blocking and tackling. Um, but I think if you can get the other things, the superior business, you know, if you can get a chance to really buy it at the right price, um, and see no really obvious red flags in the track record, you're onto something and you really got to meet the guy to see, to confirm. And then, and then look at how does he, how does he talk to you? Like a, a lot of guys talk to you like you're a dollar bill. Well, I'm a dollar. If I'm just a dollar bill, he's probably once my dollar, you know, you know what I mean? And and so will he really engage? And that's why, to a certain extent, we've always liked uh, our form of activism because we're touching on things that are really important to us. And will he engage with us? Will he think about it? Will he come back with questions on it? Or is it completely dismissed out of hand? Because as I said earlier, I'm a redheaded guy from New York. You know, and and so that also tells you, gets you a little insight into um, these executives. I think what you say is quite similar. We had uh, Rajiv Agrawal um, in the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and he focuses on investing in India. And he says that one thing, the one thing he really doesn't agree with Buffett on is, um, at least in India, is that um, the business is more important than than the management. He thinks uh, the management is really key figuring out businesses in, in India. And I think uh, listening to you, it seems the same. But how would you say? I don't want to well, put I, the words in your I, mouth. So. I mean, Nicholas, I, I think the businessman made the business. Okay, so yes, we need the business. And then we need to reflect also that that guy had a big part of it. Yeah, sure. He got lucky in some cases and whatnot, but usually you build a big business that's super profitable. Um, you did some things really correctly. Well, I, I think they're a little bit joined at the hip. And when you look at our investment philosophy, superior businesses, that's the profitability of the business. That's the cash flow. Uh, management with integrity to, and know how to run a public company. That's the management. Discipline valuation. That's the valuation you pay. Because you can get the best management and the best company, you pay the wrong price, you know, end of story. And then long duration, because the more long duration stocks you can get into, the easier your life is. You know, that coming together is what the secret sauce is. And two obvious challenges that I think of when investing in foreign markets must be language and culture. So I'm curious, how, how did you overcome those? Or how do you deal with them? I think I said I was competitive before, maybe I need to <laughs> say that I'm probably pig-headed a little bit. You know, to me, it just made the puzzle more interesting. You know? And as I got going and I got a little bit better at it, because I was seeing 200 and 250 companies a year when we were really starting out in the early days, 
Um, then I figured out that a lot of these guys were my age or a little bit older than me, and we'd come through similar similar things. Once we survived 97, 98, I'd sit down with the executives and say, like, how did you enjoy 97, 98? You know, <laughs> and we, you know, the bond was just brilliant. So I, um, you know, I have, I think the way to break down bonds between cultures is being completely honest and authentic with people and show that you care. And indeed, if you've grown a big business in Asia, I, I have a, an absolute mountain of respect for these people. Because it's not, none of this stuff is easy. Nothing in life really is easy, but building a big business. And so the fact that we can be very respectful and towards their achievements is is a very honest and authentic uh, attitude that we have. And you have a whole chapter dedicated to China in the book. So can you tell us a little bit about China and the evolvement since 1985 to today from from an investor perspective? Well, I actually broke it down into three chapters, but kind of one section, um, because um, let me say at the beginning, there's never one China. China is just this enormous, diverse place of so many different things, right? So for Richard to put it into three categorizations in three chapters was an, an enormous oversimplification, but it, but it, 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 I tried to capture, you know, the early days when basically they were learning how to manufacture uh, for export. And then, you know, the uh, second stage where they were beginning to have public companies and, you know, and, 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 and there were all different ways that we were trying to get exposure into China's growth. And the, and the last stage where really the Chinese public companies came of age, you know, going in the early part of that chapter where really the, the CEOs had no role models. And by the end of the chapter, you know, we're, we're seeing not only role models, but we're seeing really great companies that were uh, big, you know, and this is something that's happened over the last uh, nine, 10 years is all of a sudden we looked up and instead of having 500 beer companies spread out all over China, we now had seven and was going to three. And every business had consolidated. And all of a sudden, these businesses now big. So China's beer company, largest beer company, will be one of the biggest beer companies in the world. Same with the noodles, same with the milk, same with you know the utility companies. All these things, we, we coined it, when you're big in China, you're big in the world. And exceptionally competitive. Not always well run, sometimes again, too aggressively, sometimes too passively, right? But they were they were uh, ambitious. You'd go into them and you think you were going into a couple hundred million dollar Hong Kong company back in the old days because it was so raw. And you look and you think, oh, this is a 20 billion US dollar company. And it, it just didn't feel like a 20 billion dollar company, you know? So this enormous evolution from from complete fragmentation, um, all driven by entrepreneurial energy of Chinese uh, people, backed up by, um, you know, some support from the government, but certainly a willingness on the part of the government to help uh, accelerate or maintain the fast growth in China. Um, I think the government alone would not have pulled off what China pulled off. 
the entrepreneurs probably on their own would have self-destructed, uh, but the combination uh, became incredibly powerful and successful, and you you see the results today. Yeah, it's a f- fantastic uh, success story. And I just wanted to ask you, when having you here, um, what what we read in in Western media now seems to be focused on that the government is becoming more and more anti-business, but at the same time, from reading your book, it seems like a lot has happened in the other di- direction in the last uh, decade or, or two. What's your take on this? Yeah, I guess, you know, this is something you can talk about for a couple of hours, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot to unpack in the West's relationship with China today. But I think at a very simple way that what we can see is life is like a, 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 a across a spectrum. And on the one end of the spectrum is what we call technocratic China, which was this partnership of businessmen and the government that was helping build the roads, build the infrastructure, build the trains, build the ports that all these entrepreneurs could take advantage of. And at the other end of the spectrum is political China. And we've seen periods of great leap forward, cultural revolution, and more recently, where the political China has dominated the technocratic China. And we hit an apex on political China, in my view, about a year ago, where Xi Jinping was just waking up in the morning and outlawing after-school education or outlawing cosmetics for women. And, you know, it was all this sort of crazy micromanagement of a society of 1.4 billion people. And I think that that is way, way slowed down. I think COVID has presented almost a existential threat for the Communist Party, which when combined with other challenges they have, like the Ukraine invasion by Russia, uh, like slower GDP, like the decline in the stock market where Chinese stocks are now down over 50%, like the decline in the real estate market, which is hitting the Chinese pocketbook, slower um, slower GDP growth, less productivity of incremental bank loan growth, uh, demographics, all those things are all hitting at a, at a similar time. And it's pulling, uh, the, it's pulling political China back uh, I don't think we're in the center where we should be, um, but we are, um, I, I think, uh, headed to, to more realistic space. What remains is this enormous challenge. And nationalism is a convenient political philosophy. And it can be very, very uh, dangerous. And there's an awful lot of nationalism on both sides with regard to China and the U.S. And what we need is we need private and confidential discussions amongst the highest levels of the U.S. and China government to um, to begin to put together a new roadmap uh, for a U.S.-China-West relationship with China. Um, And what what do you do you think that will happen, or is it uh, is it your hope? Uh, well, I, I certainly hope for the prosperity of so many people around the world. You know, globalization went on over the last forty years with the opening up of China, and it drove inflation down, interest rates down, and look how many people got pulled up out of poverty around the world. Not only in Sweden, but 
we pulled 700 million people up out of poverty in China. You know, that's been a good thing. The world should be should congratulate itself for having done that. Now, it all seems we 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 went too far on globalization. Supply chains got got extended. Um, um, uh, technologies weren't respected. Intellectual properties weren't respected. And so we've, we've, we've got to swing that back and get it more in balance. But there are two ways you can do it. You can have what we're going through now is a managed decoupling. So every businessman, every government official has to look and say, is that business okay to have a global supply chain or do we need this domestically? Okay. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. And I think that process goes on and the longer it goes on, the better it is. The alternative is what we call mandated decoupling or sanctions, where this stuff is going to be told happens overnight. And it could be in response to selling arms to Russia, or it could be in response to uh, uh, China attacking Taiwan, or it could be something that the U.S. does that triggers it, the, the response from China. And we need to have really cool minds and experienced hands at this. And, and uh, to avoid this, to avoid this. Um, and so it, I'm deeply worried um, because when you go to complete uh, mandated decoupling, uh, onshoring back to everywhere, so Sweden's going to make all your products that you think are strategic for Sweden. Um, that is incredibly inflationary. And we're already now seeing the dangers of inflation and inflation expectations. So it'll, it's, it's going to be more inflationary for the world, less prosperity around the world, um, less growth around the world, um, all driven in the idea of nationalism when we live on a planet that is under attack from climate change and other issues. So there, there, there are reasons why it shouldn't happen. And if we can keep the process under control, it'd be good. But, but political leadership is uh, very weak on, uh, on, on both sides. Um, and they are weak, even though they like to present themselves as super strong, they're incredibly weak because they don't have the confidence to really engage for a new uh, roadmap for the world. Yeah, let's let's cross our fingers that 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 will improve in the coming coming years. And coming from a, a really general question to now a quite a specific one, um, many of our listeners are are value investors, and uh, I think. Many of them see value in uh, in Chinese equities today, and uh, I think most of the Western investors focus on the big names such as Tencent and Alibaba and so on. And what's your view on on the internet sector in in China? Well, the 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 internet sector um, has one big problem, which is really supply and demand for their stock. If you go back. Uh, now 15 months at the peak of the Asiax Japan index in February 2021, there was literally no one left to buy those stocks. And so it it nothing wrong with them. They'll be around in a long time. But boy, they got a lot of people are going to sell that stock to get liquidity, to get their China exposure down, to get whatever, you know, just stocks that go down that much become gum on your shoe and you, you got to get rid of them. And so I think we're, we're, we're down a long way in those stocks. So a lot of that has happened. Um, um, 
but it and and also this the pendulum between technocratic and political China uh, did not favor these these internet companies. Um, so I think the big ones are be around for a long, long time because they got very big cash flow positive companies. I think there are companies in China that are quote unquote in the internet space that had just have money losing uh, models, and um, you know. I, I, we don't have we we don't have we don't have interesting companies that just chronically lose money. We just it's not our not our stick. We got to leave that to somebody else. But a great business that you have dedicated a whole chapter to in the book is TSMC or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And having lived uh, one year in Taiwan myself, I have to ask you a little bit why you love this company. Um, well, they just had a better model. If you had walked in 21 years ago with me into TSMC, uh, they would have said uh, several things to you. They'd have said, we don't compete with our customers. We don't compete with our customers. Uh, Samsung cannot say that. Intel cannot say that. So if you're a, you got a rocket science IC design for a chip, I think you'd rather probably go to Taiwan and have that made to protect your intellectual property. They then figured out that the price of fabs, these these huge facilities, were going from hundreds of millions of dollars to now $22 billion to build one of these things. And no product was big enough to fully load, uh, to fully load that factory. And so you needed three, four, five customers. And so they spread the CapEx over three or four customers. And the guy who had to build this plant just on his own, he couldn't get the utilization up above 50% and he couldn't make money off of it. Um, so that was that was incredibly important. The other thing is they have been absolutely relentless in, in, in investing in their intellectual property library and keeping that and making it open sourced to their customers. So you can come with your design but you're going to be missing four or five fundamental components that you need to incorporate into your design in order to get that chip manufactured. And so their IP library allows you to accelerate that process. And Samsung and Intel don't really do that to anything close to the same degree. And so what we've seen as a result is we've seen TSMC over 21 years pass other semiconductors in terms of technological sophistication. And we've never seen anybody else pass anybody in this. Well, there's never been another semiconductor that leapfrogged someone who got ahead of them on the technological node. The only one we've seen in the last 21 years has been TSMC. And, and, and that's the result of a very simple model. Don't compete with your customers. Treat the small guys and the big guys the same. You know, and uh, and that was brilliance by Morris Chang and, and brilliance in a very simplistic way. And everybody else in the industry was too greedy. They couldn't they couldn't not compete with their customers. You know, they couldn't they didn't want to spend the money for the R&D. And uh, you see TSMC, which is one of the most sophisticated companies in the world. We've watched it go from a tiny company to now one of the top 10 public companies in the world. I mean, just just crazy. That's fantastic. And you're still a shareholder after more than 20 years, right? Yeah, we're still a shareholder. 
So going from buy and hold to the art of selling, which you have dedicated a chapter on, uh, which is written by your colleague James Squire. Can you please expand a bit on this? Yeah, so so um, after my experience with Leon Levy, I spent a good number of years figuring it out. That was when I came across rebalancing with Charlie Ellis in, in winning the loser's war. Um, I remembered a story... Um, uh, there's a story. I was an analyst in New York, and there was a company called Tandon Corp, which made the first floppy disk drive for the IBM PC, which was the first uh, portable personal computer. And stock was great. Went from like two and a half up to thirty-five. And John Bush walked in the into the office one afternoon and sold every client out. And I said, John, why'd you do that? It's been great. You know, everything's good. It's kind of. And so. Uh, I wrote next quarter at, at 32 that it was still a buy. Then the next couple of quarters, it was still a buy at 24, and then at 18, and then at 12, and then at six. And finally, at, at four, I made this ridiculous comment that you've seen me be early on my purchases before, but now is the time, you know, and, it, and eventually went to zero. And that day that John walked in, the comment that I didn't listen to is he said, well, we're just getting tomorrow's price today. <laughs> and you do. You get tomorrow's price today at certain times. Uh, re rebalancing is great. The, the, the key, and, and we have defined six ways that we sell securities that are in the chapter. Because this is harder. It's harder than buying, right? And so what we like to do is when we say, well, we got to sell this. Well, which of the six are the reasons why we're selling it? Ah, I get it. You know, and, and so then we can really define, is it tomorrow's price today or is the industry fundamentally changing or have they done something? You know, you can, you can break it down and, and it, it's a much more rational discussion at that time. But what James, and this, in, in my view, this is by far the most valuable chapter in the book. It's the best chapter of in a book that I've ever read on selling. And what we've done, and, and I, I did some of this, but James really gets the credit because he verbalized it. What we had done was we had tiered our companies. Tier one being really these great companies like TSMC. Tier three businesses being cigar butts on the street, right, that you try to avoid. And if you look at it, whatever tier you're in depends on the duration that you can hold this stock. Those tier three businesses, if you're in it, you better have a plan to get out of it because time works against you. Whereas the tier one businesses, time works for you. And, and that distinction of tying quality of the business to the duration of the holding period, that is an incredibly simple concept. I don't know why it took me, you know, it didn't take us 30 years. We knew this 10 years ago, probably, maybe even a little longer. But for a lot of my life, probably half my investment life, I really didn't, I, I knew it at some level, but I didn't really have it. Um, now we really have it and it's, it's an incredibly valuable um, concept. And I was lucky to have survived my first half of my career to get to the second half. Yeah, we strongly recommend everyone to buy the book to get the details. Yeah, that chapter is, is worth it all and, and you get a lot of 
a lot of extra as well. And I think what we would speak about next is something we mentioned before, the cap on subscriptions, something you mentioned has been really central to to your outperformance and especially how much the investors in your fund have, have gained. Uh, because, I mean, the fund can have a, can have a return and, and that's not for sure that the investors will have the same return. I think Peter Lynch's example is quite quite central there that he delivered this amazing uh, track record, but but the investors in, in the fund at average didn't fare well. So can you maybe describe a bit why this has been beneficial for you? Yeah. So, the so, so the, the essential problem is what we see unfolding today at Tiger Global, where Chase Coleman has blown up more money than he ever made over the prior 20 years or whatever he ran. Tom Steyer did this at Farallon, Peter Lynch, you know, the Wall Street Journal's fund manager of the decade during the 2000s, um, compounded 29% and his investors on a capital way to return basis lost money. This is a chronic problem throughout the whole industry. Time way to returns, just get the definitions right. Time way to return measures the NAV per share over a period of time, hopefully inception to today. Some people cherry pick, but that's another issue. Capital way to returns measure the IRR or measure the return of individual investors and the investor group as a whole since they were investors. And those two numbers diverge. Ilya Dikhev of Emory uh, University in Atlanta documented about 10, 15 years ago that there was a 7.5% discount between the time weighted returns and the capital weighted returns. So if you said your hedge fund was going to earn 10%, the investors were earning 2.5%. And he had studied the top 100 successful hedge funds. So this is a huge problem. Huge problem where investors aren't getting what they want. And what's the result of this? Well, now we have indexing and ETFs. It's a natural outcome that that not only could the stock pickers not beat the index, but the investors with the stock pickers were underperforming. And so uh, I got extremely lucky on the spur of a moment, probably the only thing I can really claim that I invented because I'd never seen it before. I was sitting at the university club in New York with a man called Crosby Smith who was running money for the Dillon family. And I was pitching him. I had no clients at this point. I was trying to raise $30 million. And I'm making my pitch and Crosby leans back and says, Richard, why aren't you going to be like everybody else just go out there and market all the time? I said, well, Crosby, what I want to do is I want to invest, you know? And he kind of gave me a smirk. And I said right there, I said, well, Crosby, how about if I legally cap the fund subscriptions into the fund at $30 million. He said, you do that legally and you have your first investor. And he put out his hand. And I thought, okay, that wasn't a big deal because that's what I want to do. I just wanted to invest for a living. And then a couple of weeks later, I walked into my dad's office and the secretary handed me a note and some guy I'd never heard of called from Switzerland saying that he had heard I was setting up a fund and it was capped and he wanted me to reserve space for him in the fund. And I go, oh, well, that's the damnedest note I ever got, you know, and because it created scarcity at some level. And so I, I got into the cap and then I realized that I saw my friends at, at the tops of bull markets. They, in the old days, they used to say, I just got $10 million in over the fax machine. I don't know what to do with it, you know, 
And we didn't have any of that because we never had those flows in. Um, and then we evolved the cap to allow us to grow, but grow at a modest rate that did not separate the time and capital weight of returns. And so for Overlook, and it's in the book, the time and capital weight of returns are almost identical over 1, 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and 30 years. And you don't see that very often. And the problem, the reason you don't see it very often is greed. Greed on the part of the fund managers and greed on the part of the investors. And, and it's, it's um, absolutely fundamental to what we do. In addition, in the last three years, we've returned a billion dollars twice to slow the growth of assets under management because we didn't want to be, I don't want to be that big, you know? And, and uh, again, money managers don't usually do that. I mean, Chase Coleman's doing it now, but those are called redemptions and side pockets and stuff like that, right? Uh, but, uh, but the cap, if you're a young fund manager, you know, you've got to seriously think about how to structure your fund with a cap on subscription. It brings you the best investors. It brings you the longest term investors. It, you know, the highest quality investors, you know, um, and it brings you stability of your assets through bull markets and bear markets. It's so generous that you're sharing all your knowledge in, in the book and also in this podcast. Uh, why is the, what is the reason why you wrote the book? Well, it, it's been very simple. Uh, Eddie, uh, I was one of the first individuals to set up a fund management business in Hong Kong 30 years ago. And over the years, many other young fund managers came along and they said, hey, can you make some introductions for me? And I said, sure, I can do that. But I, I got just one small thing. I, I want to see your legal documents. And I want them to have a legal cap on subscriptions. And if you put the legal cap on subscriptions in your document, I'll introduce you to investors. No one ever came back to see me. So you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, what I was thinking. So then you also have this uh, Colombo question in the book. And so I have to ask just one more thing. Uh, do you think Overlook can keep returning about 15% per year over the next 30 years? No, I, I, I would have said we could have done it for the for five years, let alone 10, 20, 30. If I was sitting with my dad 30 years ago in his office and said, yeah, dad, we'll do close to 14 and a half, 15% for 30 years. Get out of here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. it, coincidentally, we did almost the exact same number in the first 15 years as the second 15 years. And that's hard to do also. But I, I think just dedication to the model, do one thing, do it well, have passion and dedication. Don't be greedy. You know, th those things are really helpful. Um, so I, no, I, I, we never promise any number. Um, I think the inflation, the world backdrop, deglobalization, all those things are huge threats to uh, global prosperity. So, do you think you would have performed better or worse if you had focused on uh, investing in the U.S. over this time? Uh, no, I, I probably. I think being in Asia, being that sort of complete outsider, suited me. I think it suited me really well. I, no, I don't think we'd have done as well. You would have done well, definitely anyway, I think, but... <laughs> 
you know, you got to get lucky. You know, we met some great, great, great managers, you know, and I guess we would have met some great people here too. Yeah, you have this uh, hall of fame. We haven't mentioned it so far. It, it's quite interesting in the book. You mentioned all these managers and, and people who are who are there. How did you come up with that idea from the beginning? Uh, I'm a... I'm a big baseball fan. I love the statistics of baseball. If you, if you know baseball, it's really all about numbers. Uh, I used to be able to, I, I would always calculate uh, baseball average, batting averages and ERAs when I was younger playing a board game with my brothers and cousins. And, and uh, baseball is the quintessential statistic sport. Um, and of course, baseball has in Cooperstown, New York, the Hall of Fame. Uh, a lot of things have Hall of Fames. Now all the sports have Halls of Fame. There must be Halls of Fame in, in Sweden. But the, the main one, the original one, was Cooperstown, New York for baseball. And uh, some of my favorite baseball players are in the Hall of Fame. And uh, so that was where I came came up with the idea. And how many superior managers are in the Hall of Fame now, in the Overlook Hall of Fame? There must be about 22 23 24 somewhere in there we it's a it's a good list over time and uh in fact as you look down the list almost all of those guys reacted to something we recommended and going way back to Morris Chang, where I, I called out Morris Chang on some policies that TSMC had. And I wrote him a letter and, you know, basically called him out on it. And he called me at home personally. And that kind of leadership is really what we, what we look for. And a lot of the people in the Hall of Fame list also took on similar actions. That, that, took, a, that took a great company and made it, you know, you, you triple the duration, you know, when they say, yeah, we're going to do that, Richard. You're right. Actually, I apologize. We haven't gotten to it, you know. It's been really fascinating to listen to your story. And before we end, we, we always speak about books because that's what we, what we love. And uh, in the introduction, you write that you love few things in life as much as a great investment book. So, um, Besides the model, can you name uh, a few books that you think every serious investor should uh, should read? Well, I've mentioned a couple. Outstanding Investors Digest. It's hard to find. I I, I couldn't do it. John Train's books on on um, on a new money masters. You know, I started out with Peter Lynch. You know, one up on Wall Street. Peter was just telling stories. And in our quarterly reports, we just try to tell stories of our companies to communicate. I thought so. I learned how to tell story from Peter. Um, the CFA Institute put out a series of anthologies, uh, classics, uh, which were classic news uh, or letters, newsletters that people had written, and they got all the best over the last hundred years, and they put them all together in an anthology that was edited by Charlie Ellis. Those books are just fantastic because, again, you can you can like two words into it, you realize he's not your cousin, right? Uh, but others, you know, so I, I mentioned John Neff, who I um, learned a lot about portfolio construction from. Of course, I'd be remiss if, you know, you didn't put really near the top. Uh, my my really respected friend, uh, David Swenson's book, Pioneering Portfolio Management. Um, 
I remember sitting in bed one morning in Boston at a house of a friend of mine, and I was reading the book, and I read a a, a, a paragraph in it, and uh, to my wife, and my wife said, "Shit, he he plagiarized that from you, Richard." Now, of course, David Swenson did not need to plagiarize Richard Lawrence, but we overlapped, we overlapped on so much, and um, that that's a great book. Uh, Margin of Safety is a great book. I, I had the, for years and years and years, I, I had the Xerox copy. But when I wrote my own book, I, uh, I bought a copy. Um, and then you find books that are out there that are come out of nowhere. And uh, there's, I got one here called The Investor's Equation by a guy by the name of Frank Ganuccio or something. Ganuccio, William Bowen and Ganusho. Um, it's called the investor's equation, creating wealth through undervalued stocks. And this guy really highlighted return on equity um, and all that comes with it. And, uh, you know, and yeah, it's completely unknown and, you know, uh, not a famous book, but, you know, it's just, you just never know when you're reading investment books where you find that piece of gold. And then, of course, my my great friend who's passed away, but the the mind of Wall Street by Leon Levy. Those are those are a few that'll keep your that'll keep your listeners busy for at least a few months. Yeah, that would take a a, a time. And and uh, I just want to mention that uh, about David Swenson. You ha- I think you have a fantastic story about uh, David Swenson coming coming to Hong Kong to. Um, and you think he's gonna take money out of your fund, but he does the opposite. Maybe you can tell that story. I spoiled it a bit now, but <laughs> no, well, well, but you you have to put it into context that this was um, May of '98. We were three months off the low. Um, uh, September, October, November, December, January. No, from from August to January, I'd been down ten percent a month every month, or more. And I, the the interest rates in Indonesia went to ninety nine percent. It wasn't enough to hold the currency, and they couldn't go higher because the accounting systems couldn't do triple-digit interest rates. Um, I mean, the absurdity of it, the absurdity of 97, 98. You mentioned about the Thai property uh, index. That was actually an aggregate index. It wasn't one stock. It was the whole property sector went down 80% three times in a row. You know, it's just it just got absurd, right? And so Swenson shows up. I'm pissed off because he can only meet me on a Saturday in June in Hong Kong, and it's hotter than Haiti. So I have to pay to turn on the aircon. And I, I, I didn't even have a presentation. I looked for it the other day. I, I didn't have a presentation. I was just talking, and I went through for about 20 minutes everything that I was confronting, and uh, and David turned to his sidekick, um, Mr. Takahashi, and said, uh, uh, have you heard enough? And he, he said, yeah, I, ha- I have heard enough. And, 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 and David turns back to me, and before he can open his mouth, I, I put my finger on it, I said, David, I'm not finished. And I went on for another 10 or 15 minute rant about everything was, I was dealing with. And then he says, okay, Richard, we'd like to add money. And by the time we got things organized, it was September. We were two months off the bottom. Um, and it was one of the great investments, one of the really courageous things I had ever seen. 
um, surprised the hell out of me. And uh, if they would have taken money out, I mean, you, you wrote in the book that you would have been yeah, that, that probably had to close down. Yeah. yeah, fantastic story. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time, Richard, to come on the podcast and share all your thoughts on how to become a better investor and also person. Do you have something more you want to finish uh, up with? No, I think uh, I, I think that managers, you know, sometimes they we all strive to be so good that we focus on performance, short-term performance and everything else. And what you have to realize is the re- the reward is the trip. You know, getting to do, as my dad used to say, I get to go into the office and learn something new every day. You know, you can't do that in many industries, you know. So we should all uh, consider ourselves incredibly fortunate and uh, and make sure that all of us are enjoying the, the journey as well as the result. And for listeners who are interested in investing in Overlook or following your performance, is that possible? Yeah, they can they can write us um, um, in in there's uh, email um, r lawrence at the model, which is the name of the book dot com. Uh, r lawrence at the model dot com, and you can write me, and now I can connect people. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Good. Perfect. Thank you so much, Richard. No, thank you guys. Enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.